Well, we are in our second week of our, our just two-week series of, Is This the End? Right? We're looking at the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and moving in a little bit into 25. And Christ talking with his disciples, right? They're coming off the temple and as, uh, temple mount as they have. They, they looked at all of the buildings and they said, wow, isn't this awesome? Lord, what do you think of all this? And he said, look, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another when it's all said and done. We talked last week about how what Jesus is really pointing at is, is not the, the, the destruction of the buildings, though that did happen. That is part of it, but, but there's like a, a double meaning in what Jesus is prophesying. And the more important thing that Jesus is looking at is the unseating of the, the power structure of the day, the, the, the undoing of the religious and civic political structure of the people of God and the inbreaking of God's kingdom in truth. Jesus talks about all of these signs that people are going to point to. And last week, what we came down to, what I hope you walked away with, is Jesus looks at all of these things and talks about all of these different things that we see as signs. And Jesus essentially says, that's just life. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. These are things that will continue to happen, but this is not the end. And he says, and don't let anyone fool you into thinking otherwise. There's a lot of people that are going to come and they're going to point to all of these amazing things that are happening in this world. The, the terrible things that are happening in this world. And they're going to try to use them to manipulate and maneuver and move you around so that you will do what they want and will follow them. And Jesus essentially says, don't do it. Don't be fooled. Keep your eyes on me. I am the only Messiah. I am the only Savior, and just this is life. This is life. And last week we ended with, with the verse that Jesus lays out there in, in verse 36 of Matthew 24, where Jesus says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Before we go any further in the passage, I want to go to the Lord and ask God that he would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear what he would have for us to hear from him this morning. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your great love with which you have loved us. Lord, I, I was so grateful for the set list this morning and, and the songs that we've sung, Lord, that, that have focused on our hearts on what matters most, and, and that is that your saving grace has broken into this world. And that your kingdom is to come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, too often we, we get it twisted and we get so focused on what we believe is the, the victory of hell on earth. And God, that is not what we're to be caught up in. Instead, we are to be about bringing in your kingdom, the inbreaking of God with us, Lord. And we are to be your body. We are to be your church. We are to be your ambassadors in this world, sharing your good news, Lord. Not the impending bad news, but the good news of God with us and salvation from judgment by grace through faith. God, may we be reminded of our mission today and may we be focused on your grace 
and your challenge to us in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my first jobs when I was a teenager was working for my grandfather's wood shop. My grandfather owns a a shop up, actually my dad owns it now, but it's a wood shop up in northern Indiana called Specialized Wood Products and Finishing Unlimited. And we own all of these different saws and all of these these different molders and and so make all of these different things. There's sawdust going everywhere and paint going everywhere up there, but we make all of these wood products. And, And all of these different machines require tweaking now and then. Depending on on the length of the board, the type of wood that we're using, the the way that we want the crown molding to look, the kind of of, uh, decoration, the decorative design that the people want as the wood goes through the molder, all of those things dictate how we set up the various razors, the various blades, the various saws, even, even our rip saws. How wide do we need the boards? And then we have all of the painting side. As the painting side, different wood responds differently to different paints or stains. And and these are all things that that I know but have no idea how it really works. And I had even less of an idea as a 17-year-old kid. So when my brother and I began working for the family business and came into work, we didn't get to touch anything. Our job was to sit at the end of all of these various machines and as the skilled labor would set up and send the wood to us, our job was just to pick up the wood and stack it. Pick up the wood and stack it. That's all we got to do. Which meant that there were oftentimes moments when people had to adjust or tweak machines because maybe a blade chipped and so there was a line on the board that they didn't want. So they would have to go in and they would take the blades off and they would take them back and they would begin grinding them. Or maybe the paint wasn't as even as they wanted or it was clumping, whatever the case may be. And so they would stop the machine and they'd say, hey, I've got to fix this time out. So my brother and I remember one particular morning, not too long after we started, the paint machines went down. So the conveyor belt that was bringing all the painted and dried wood down to us at the end stopped. And so we did what any sensible teenage young man would do at 6.45 in the morning when the machine stopped. We laid down under the machine and started taking a nap. We weren't allowed to touch the machine, so what else were we supposed to do? Apparently, that was the wrong answer. I don't remember what he said, but I know that when my grandfather came out of the office, he was several shades of unhappy, and you could hear him everywhere on the shop floor. So we quickly hurried, got out of the, from under the machines and came over and, and grandpa let us know. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm not paying you to just sit around. And I, trying to lighten the mood, was like, actually, that's exactly what you pay us to do. Again, the wrong answer. I pay you to stack this wood and to blah, 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 blah. I was like, All right, great. Well, grandpa, the, the wood is not moving right now. The day has just begun. There is nothing to do. Third time's the charm. Again, the wrong answer. Grandpa's like, you boys come with me. We work in a wood shop, don't we? Like, yes, we do. What does a wood shop produce? And I was like, well, wood. He's like, no, sawdust. 
It's like there's sawdust everywhere in here. It's like, well, we swept the floor last night. He's like, well, you need to sweep the floor again. Listen, anytime the machine stops, you get a broom and you start sweeping. You're children of the owner, blah, 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 blah. This is not a good example. I thought because we were children of the owner, that meant we got to do whatever we wanted. Fourth wrong answer. People should never see you just sitting around and do nothing. If the machine shut down, you get up and you sweep the floor. And if you've already swept it, you sweep it again. I learned that day a very important lesson. That sitting down on the job is never the appropriate course of action. That when the work bell hits, it is time to find something to do and to keep busy, to keep active until the bell tells you it's time to stop. I think this is an important lesson for us to learn as the people of God. And it's a lesson that we often miss. See, we want to focus on how the machines are working. And we want to know the intricacies of how we fix the machine and how we, how we rearrange the way things are moving. And then when things aren't working quite the way, we just sit back and watch and we say, oh no, the machine is broken. But you realize that in the Bible, that is never our job. That as followers of Jesus, and hear me on this, as followers of Jesus, we are never invited to be spectators. Everybody tracking with me? Following Jesus and Christianity is not a spectator activity. There is work to be done, and everybody has something that they could be doing. The gospel is the responsibility of all of us. God's mission has been entrusted to young and old, male and female. We all have a part to play. And I think that's going to be what we see as Jesus' primary point as he talks about the reality of the coming of the day of the Lord. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And again, we're going to start in verse 36. Matthew 24. Four, starting in verse 36. And it says this, Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be sitting in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time at night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time, it will be good for that servant whose master finds them doing what, so when he returns. 
Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come home on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and ensign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Something I want us to notice before we get into the main points is where this ends. At the end, everybody's looking for the end and the day of the Lord. And when we think of the end, we think about the judgment day. But do you notice who gets judged at the end when the master returns and finds the servant just chilling and hanging out? It is the servant that needs to be concerned first and foremost when, with when the master is going to come. Not that they know, but that they're ready when that time comes. And Jesus warns us at the very outset of this, this section here in Matthew 24 that no one knows when Christ is coming back. No one knows when Christ is coming back. All of this looking at all of the different signs, all of, us, all of this looking at the different passages of Scripture and trying to, to, to parse out the realities that are going on and, and trying to use different forms of numerology so that we can count down and find the exact day is a fool's errand. Listen, if anyone happens to get it right, they were just guessing. Why do I know that? Because... Jesus tells us here that only God the Father knows the date and time. I don't want us to miss this. Only God the Father knows the time and date. Jesus makes here a, a, a claim that is shocking and, and somewhat jarring to us as modern day ev evangelicals. It doesn't fit well with our theological understanding of how God works, which is kind of funny because that seems to be the way that it often is. That when we get super firm in our theological understandings, and don't get me wrong, I love theological education, I love studying, I love talking about the Bible, but there are times when we become so married to what we think the Bible says about God that we don't give God the room to be God. And Jesus here makes, again, a shocking claim. Jesus essentially declares, God only knows. But what is shocking is that the revelation only gives the knowledge to one part of the Godhead. That, that only God the Father knows that. Now we look at that and modern theologians would say, well, what about God the Spirit? What about, what about God the Son? Like they are co-equal with God, right? We could get into all kinds of confusing ridiculousness about what the Trinity means and how it functions. But the basic uh, essence of it is that, that all of the parts of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct, but they are part of the same at the same time. We can argue back and forth, but that's essentially the easiest way to understand it, which is to say you can't understand it at all. It's super confusing. But this passage, I think, de describes what, what the Bible, would what scholars would call the kenosis. I want everybody to say that word with me. Kenosis. Kenosis is a word that we find in Philippians 2, 
verses 5 through 11. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, it's a passage that I come to often because it lays out for us how we are to respond to one another based on the example that Jesus gave to us. I'm going to read it to you right quick. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, kenosis, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we see here, it tells us that Jesus, one of the, the amazing things about Christ is that he, he became nothing, is what it says in the NIV. Now, I, I generally like the NIV, but I don't agree with, with the way it's rendered here. The word kenosis literally translated means to empty. That, that Jesus emptied, poured out, him, was, was poured out. He was emptied and, and made available, which makes sense, right? Because we are pouring the reality of divinity into humanity. God becoming flesh. In the process, what we see in Philippians 2 is that Jesus voluntarily limited himself and put his divine abilities into the Father's hands for him to use only in obedience to the Father and at the Father's discretion. And we struggle with that because Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. So we think, well, if that's the case, then Jesus needs to know and be able to do all that the Father does. But is that not foolishness? I mean, if he is 100% man, there has to be some level, some level of, of sacrifice that God has made. To me, it reminds me of the question. Like, we, we think, can, could Jesus have limited himself by becoming a human? Well, I say that Philippians 2 says that absolutely, but it's the age-old question. Could, could God create a rock that was too big for him to lift up? Well, that's a problematic question for us, right? Because no matter how we answer it, we are putting limitations on God. Could God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? Well, if we say, well, no, God couldn't make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it because then God would be too weak. He, that, that would put limitations on the strength of God. But at the same time, if we say that God can create a rock, so can't create a rock so big, well, then there's something God can't do. No matter which way we go, we put limitations on God. No matter how we answer the question. I think the same is true with Christ being fully God and fully man. We ask ourselves, well, if Jesus was not fully omniscient, all-knowing, how could he be fully God? If Jesus was not fully omniscient, if he didn't know all things at all times through all of history, how could he have been God? You know what's funny to me, though, is we don't ask those questions about any of the two other omnis, right? We have, uh, we have omniscient, which means that, that he was all-knowing, but then we have omnipresent. Well, Jesus clearly was only present in one place at a time and his time walking the earth, right? He wasn't all places at all times. 
His humanity restricted him to a certain place at certain times. Same thing would be with, with Christ's omnipotence. He, he may have had the potential for that, but he clearly, he clearly was self-limiting his power during his time on earth. I don't claim to understand how or why it works, but I'm telling you that as we, as we look at scripture, it is the reality that Jesus was dealing with limitations. But you know what's interesting to me is that we could sit here and we could, there are probably those of you in the room that we could debate back and forth about this all day, but Jesus did not seem all that too concerned with it, did he? Jesus says, look, no one knows. No one knows. Only the Father. The angels don't know. Only the Father in heaven knows. And Jesus was good with that. The Father knows was good enough for Jesus. And I would like to submit to you that it should be good for enough for us too. The fact that God knows when the end is coming and how it will play out should be okay with us. And Jesus goes into talking about the signs. He says, look, no one knows. Then he goes back to the signs of the times that he talked about at the beginning of chapter 24. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus once again notes something that's important for us to remember, that life needs to go on until it can't. That life goes on until it can't. We, we like to get caught up, well, is he talking about the wickedness, that as it was in the days of Noah, that it was gonna be, but it doesn't seem to be that that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus talks about two different things when he talks about the days of Noah. He talks about things that are everyday and ordinary and things that are exceptional. Jesus says, hey, look, up until the flood came, people were eating and drinking. They were going about their day. They just had daily routines that they went to. You and I have those, right? We have everyday, ordinary routines. We, we could lay them out, lay them out for each other. Like most days for me are ordinary. I get up in the morning. I get dressed. I go downstairs. I start my water boiling so I can make coffee. I text Robin and I say, Robin, did you feed the dog? Put the coffee into the filter. I check to see if Robin has responded to my text message. I pour water over the coffee. I let the dog outside. I pour coffee in the cup. I let the dog in. I sip coffee, peruse the internet, and pet the dog until it's time to go. As you can tell, most of my morning re re revolves around coffee and the dog. It's very rudimentary. It's very basic. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing exciting going on in the Myers household at 7.35 every morning. It's just a day. It just is what it is. But sometimes the schedule gets turned away around. Sometimes we, we get these exceptional things, these incredible moments, these big events that, that in, ha, come into our lives that we get to celebrate and we get to have these awesome things that happen in our lives. Now, Matthew specifically notes weddings and I haven't done one of those in a while, but I have done a few things that, and we as a church have done some things that have been pretty exceptional over the last month. 
You know, just a couple weeks ago, we got to participate in Trunk or Treat on Sunday evening. The day after that was JJ's birthday. We watched him that day march in a Halloween parade, and we went to cross-country awards that evening. Our entire Monday was, was all kinds of stirred up. Then that Wednesday, I left at the end of the workday, and I went up to West Lafayette, Indiana, and watched Purdue absolutely shellac Grace College. Then we went into the studio on Thursday to finish up recording our Christmas album, which is coming out Thanksgiving week. It was a week to remember, and we have those weeks, right, where the ordinary everyday of our schedules, the just basic eating and drinking, get, 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 get moved around for feasting and celebrating. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, just like it was before Noah, people had just everyday ordinary days, but they also had exceptional moments that were exciting, you're going to have those things. You're going to have days that are super up. You're going to have days that are super down. And you're going to have a lot of days that are somewhere in the middle. That's just life. The same was true of the people who lived during Noah's day until the end of their world literally came. The point is clear, I think. Life goes on until it doesn't. Life goes on until it doesn't. Jesus goes on in verses 40 and 41 to contrast two, two potential outcomes upon his return. In both cases, one person is taken while the other remains standing. Jesus says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, what we don't know is which side of the equation is positive. Now, for those of us that have the rapture in mind, we assume that the taken means being raptured and taken up to meet Jesus in the air, and that the other person is left to go on with life without them. And it could mean that. Other scholars believe that that the person being taken is being taken into custody. That is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and that one person will be arrested while one person will get away. One person will be taken to stand judgment while one person will escape. The final thing that people believe taken means is that one person is going to be taken by death and the other is forced to live on without them. Now the context, specifically the references to the time of Noah, caused me to lean towards its death. No matter which of the three we choose, however, the point remains that people will keep living as long as the world keeps spinning, but the ride will end abruptly for all of us. That is a truism that we cannot escape. That our ride on this rock, will come to an end. And even when we expect it, we don't really expect it, do we? Jesus is talking specifically not just about our natural deaths, but the reality of the end of time. And he is encouraging us to learn to live and rest what one scholar calls rest in ignorance. Jesus doubles down on this in Acts 1.17. 
He says, it is not for you to know the times or dates set by the Father. The times and dates that Jesus will return. I love you and I mean it. Are none of your business. They're none of mine either. And I don't say that to be rude, but what, the reason I tell you that is that, that we, we take up a lot of brain cells and a lot of intellectual power, a lot of worry and concern, focusing on, is this the end? Oh man, is this person the Antichrist? Is the anti what are we gonna do to stop it? Do you, you do realize that Jesus nowhere in the Bible, that Paul never tells us, that, that, that Peter never tells us, that James never tells us, that John never tells us, that Jesus or anyone else said, your job as followers is to figure out how to stop and delay the coming of Christ. And we would say, well, that's not what we're saying. Yes, it is. We are trying to stop the end of the world, which is utter foolishness. That is not our job. When do we send the missiles to stop the bad guys? You don't. If we are talking purely about the reality of what is in the Bible, the coming of the end, we do not have a hand in determining how and when things happen. And frankly, it is none of our business. What we need to concern ourselves with is not when the end is coming, but the fact that the end is coming. And we need to move beyond focusing on what we do about the end and what we do while we wait for the end. One scholar says this, if the son himself does not know the time of his return, how cheerfully should we, his followers, rest in ignorance that cannot be removed, trusting in all things to our heavenly father's wisdom and goodness, striving, hear me, striving to obey his clearly revealed will and leaning on his goodness for support. Striving to obey his clearly revealed will and leaning on his goodness for support. I want to go back to that, that meme I talked about last week, the Andy Griffith meme where Andy's talking to Opie and Opie says, hey, dad, when, when, is, when is the Lord going to return? And Andy says to Opie, well, son, that's none of our concern. We weren't invited to be on the planning committee. We're on the welcoming committee. I normally hate memes, but there's a lot of truth to that. Jesus did not, God did not ask for our opinion about how and when he should come. He never called us to worry and fret about how and when he'll come. He, he never called us to try to stop the reality of the end of the world. Rather, we're to be cognizant of the fact that it's coming and do our job in the meantime. Our job is not to worry about when, but to work while we wait. Our job is not to worry about when, but to work while we wait. We are to keep watch. Jesus says in verse 42, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he'd have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the coming of the Son of Man will be at an hour when you do not expect him. That's a truth, right? 
No, no one knows when a thief comes. I've never heard of a thief calling to set up an appointment. Hey, I was just going to come rob your house this week. want to make sure. Does 1030 tonight work for you? They don't set that up. There's no announcement. They just show up, and before you know it, they're walking out the door with your stuff. And if, if they're a good thief, you don't know it until after they're gone. But that, you know what? That actually is a concern that the Bible brings up. That Christ could come and we just miss it all together because we have no idea what we're looking for. Not that we try to stop it, not that we worry about it, but that we're excitedly waiting and understand that we have a task to do in the meantime. I actually think that there is a, now I, I, I hesitate to say this because someone's going to take it wrong and be like, you think that what you think is better than the Bible? That's not what I'm about to say. But I do think that there is a modern day illustration that might be a little bit more poignant than the idea of a thief. How many of you have ever had the unfortunate need to call for a cable repairman to come to your house? Anybody? Is that not the worst thing ever? You call and you're like, hey, my internet's out. I need someone to come fix my internet or my phone. And they're like, okay, um, we'll come sometime between Monday and Thursday, between the hours of 9 to 5 or between the hours of 6 and 9.30 on any of those days. Be ready. What? <laughs> Why even schedule it at that point, right? Pretty much be ready any day, any time, because we might show up. That's the coming of the Lord. You need service, right? There's something you need, and you know the repairman is coming, but you don't know when. And so if you are not there, and you are not prepared when they show up, you don't get internet. I think that the concern here is less about whether or not we will get internet, whether or not we will get service when Christ returns, but more about will those around us get service when Christ returns. You see, if we're followers of Jesus, then we can be assured in our faith that God is going to take care of us. It doesn't seem to be Jesus' concern, though. Jesus' concern seems to be more about, are we doing the job? Are we working? When the Lord comes back, when Christ finally comes back to earth, and he arrives, and he's here, and there's no doubt about it, what will he find you doing? Much like my grandfather walking into the shop, when Jesus comes into the shop of this world, will he find you sleeping underneath the machines? Or will he find you diligently working, finding something to do to care for that which he has entrusted to you? That's the question we need to concern ourselves with. Not necessarily when Christ will come, but what will he find us doing when he gets here? What are we doing in the meantime? Because Christ's coming will mark the end of the world as we know it. Based on our understanding of scripture, most would also say that it, it marks the end of the opportunity to share or receive God's saving grace. Now that is something about which we should be concerned. If with Christ comes the judgment of all those who do not believe, our concern should not be how do we stop an unbelieving, wicked world from being wicked, but how do we turn an unbelieving, wicked world to the grace of Jesus Christ and help them find salvation? It should not be how do we destroy them, but how do we find restoration and forgiveness through Jesus? How do we lead them to repentance? That's our job. 
We are, and Jesus tells us that, that we are to care for the master's property and people until he returns. We have been entrusted with the keys to the kingdom. And our job is to care for those Christ came to save. Look at verse 45. He says, who then is faithful and wise, is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of all the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? Who are the ones that, that the, the master has entrusted the care of his property and his people? Well, if that's us, then, then we have a job. It will be good for that servant whose master finds them doing so when they return. See, we have, we have a task to do. And I want us to notice something, because Jesus doesn't end this little story here about when is the end coming? What are the signs of the time? You know, Jesus spends what we see as one chapter talking about, you know, these are the signs and, and this is what you're doing. But then he goes into chapter 25 and he spends a whole lot of time giving three different illustrations about, look, you have a job to do. And when, when I come back, you better be doing it. If we look into 25, we, chapter 25, we see the parable of 10 virgins, right? The virgins were to be prepared and they each had a lamp. And some of the virgins came prepared with extra oil and, and were ready to take care of that lamp so that, that whenever the Lord came, whenever, whenever the bridegroom came, they would be ready for the celebration of the night ahead. It tells us that five were ready, but five weren't. That five had thought ahead and were prepared they were ready for what was required of them. Five were not. And those five got left behind. Tells the story of, of the bags of gold, the parable of the bags of gold, where the man goes on his journey who calls his servants to him and gives his wealth to them. Five bags to one, two to another, and one to a final one. And that when he comes back, Two of the servants have been faithful and have invested that money and taken care of it with the best of their ability, but one had sat on it. The Lord finds him sitting on the resources. We are to invest the substance of our lives into expanding God's kingdom, providing a return on his investment in us. It's the theme of the bags of gold. Then we see the sheeps and goat that Jesus separates, that when the Son of Man comes, he separates the right and the left, the, the goats on the left, the sheeps on the right, and, and the sheep being the ones that have cared for. They, they fed the hungry. They gave drink to the thirsty. They gave clothes to the naked. They cared for the sick. They visited and cared for those in prison. And, th and then those on the left are those that just didn't do any of that. Jesus triples down and the point is clear. We have a job to do. And God help us if God does not find us doing that job when he comes back. It is expected that we will work while we wait. We have a job to do. Our job is not to, to clasp our hands and wring our hands with concern of, oh my goodness, is this the end? If it is, what are you going to do about it? I mean, if Vladimir Putin actually was the Antichrist, is there anything that you or I as native Seymourians can stop him from releasing nuclear weapons all over the world? And the answer is absolutely not. But you know what we can do? 
We can be telling people in our neighborhoods about the truth of Jesus. So if that were to happen and life as we know it ends, whether it be from a nuclear holocaust or from God himself coming back to earth, that more and more people would be ready for the return of Christ. See, we get caught up on the wrong thing. Brothers and sisters, Christ is going to return. I I don't want you to take me wrong. I believe that Christ is going to come on the clouds just as he said he would and that he is going to come back in glory and power. And, And I know that there's a lot of disagreement, but I believe that God is going to rapture his church and pull us from the mess of this world. And I believe that God has a glorious plan and celebration for, for us when we, when we stand in his presence. But I believe, so I believe that our concern is not to worry about what happens after death. That's already settled. What we're to worry about is all of those that don't have it settled. We're to worry about what do we do with this pearl of great price that is the gospel and how do we share it? As early and as often as we can, how do we understand it? How do we make it an intrinsic and extrinsic part of who we are? That that whether it's internal life or external life, that the gospel permeates the way that we act, the way that we speak, the way that we treat others. That's what we should be worried about. I have no problem with, with, with doing all of the biblical gym and theological gymnastics. I love that stuff. I enjoy it, and I'm happy to have those conversations. But may we not miss the point while we're focusing on the details. The point is not, are these the signs of the times? They are the signs of the times, that life is going on and that life is hard. Oh, is Christ coming back? Absolutely, and his return is imminent, meaning that it could happen any moment. Before I finish this sermon, Christ could come back and we could be with him in glory. That, that's great. No control over that. And the truth is, anyone that tells you they know is lying to you. We don't know, and it's not our job to know. Our job is to do. Our job is to believe with faith and to faithfully act, to responsibly handle God's word to work as the Lord's prayer says, to bring God's kingdom come, to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're to be bringing about God's kingdom and will on earth as it is in heaven until we one day are standing in heaven. Brothers and sisters, may we be faithful servants. May we not be worried about the wrong things. May we not see all of the signs in the world and be misled about the reality of who we are and what we're to do. The the question of how we're to respond is always the same. We are to share the gospel by grace through faith with all the world that as many as possible might believe. May that be our mission. May we not misplace our faith and understanding. May we not get confused and may we not get it twisted. May we be faithful servants that when Christ returns, he finds us not sleeping on the job, but working hard to sweep up and bring the the cleansing power of the gospel to all those in our immediate area through his strength, by the power and presence of his spirit. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. God, I thank you that as sideways as this world can often get, that we don't need to worry about that. As you yourself, Lord, said, that, that by worrying, we cannot extend our life by one single year. We can't make ourselves taller by one inch. And if that's not the case, if we can't do anything to fix it, Lord, that we're not to worry about that. Lord, may we be cognizant that you are coming again. 
May we find comfort in the fact that though we don't know when you do, may we trust you. May we obediently serve you as long as we can and as faithfully as we can. Lord, may your grace and your gospel permeate our lives. May your saving grace work in and through us that all might hear, that as many as possible might come to faith and salvation, that when you come, fewer will be left out or left behind. God, may your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives. Whatever the world around us is doing, may we faithfully serve in Jesus' name. Amen.